Welcome to another episode of the WBT, Wrath Bearing Tree's illustrious and well-known podcast. I'm the host today, Adrian Bonnenberger, and I'm joined by two uh, good old friends and great writers who also happen to be veterans, Brian Kastner and Matt Gallagher. Brian, Matt, hello. Howdy. Hey, Adrian. How are you? Good. So for today's podcast, we have decided, uh, we collectively decided beforehand to read or reread Homage to Catalonia. Read, in my case, I had never read it before, although on many occasions in bars and in parties, I claimed to have read it or at least let people assume that I had so as not to sort of get dunked on or, or be exiled from the conversation. Mea culpa. Before we roll into the discussion, I want to just give a, a quick overview of, of the scene, and then we'll just start chatting about it. Um, so Homage to Catalonia was written by George Orwell of 1984 and Animal Farm fame. It details the year and a half or two years, it's, I'm not sure exactly how long he spent in the Spanish Civil War, fighting for the POUM, which was Trotskyite Communist Party, uh, which was only in existence, I think, for the first year or so, or year, however long Orwell was there, plus the six months before he got there. So he's with POUM. They get repressed and uh, by the Stalinist communists, the PCE, the pa Communist Party of Spain, and he has to leave Spain. So he leaves Spain. Uh, the Spanish Civil War itself was fought between 1936 and 1939. It was widely seen as a precursor to World War II. The fascists were one side, and the communists and republicans think centrists or democrats in our context. Uh, the fascists revolted against uh, them. So it was the communists and, and, and moderates, and the anarchists, I'm sorry, versus uh, the fascists. And um, the fascists revolted because the centrist government uh, in alliance with the leftists were passing reforms and sort of making it so that the aristocrats and the landowners, there were huge ties between them and the military, uh, had to give up privileges, had to give up land, land was being redistributed, uh, industries were being privatized. And the whole idea was, you know, there were different visions of how to industrialize and modernize Spain, Spain that had fallen behind other European countries. And a lot of Americans and British uh, joined up with the uh, mostly communists slash anarchists. I'm not aware of any Americans who joined up with the fascists. The fascists were supported by, uh, famously by Germany and Italy. And so we join uh, George Orwell, a British native who is, I don't know the circumstances under which he joined up, but he joins up in 19, I think 36 and serves until 1937. Did I get that right? Or did I miss anything? I, no, I think, I think that pretty much covers it. I, I think you got there in December of 36. The book covers, I don't know, nine, nine to 11 months, something like that. Yes, and, and the fact that actually that it's confusing is, is not just a product of Adrian, your you know, woeful lack of research. It's because the book <laughs> itself is confusing. And I mean, to the, I don't know where you were planning on starting, but like you said in your intro, you're not sure exactly how Orwell got there or why. And from reading the book, you don't know why or Orwell got there or why, right? Like he, he says in the very beginning, I went to write newspaper articles and I joined because I couldn't conceive of doing anything else. Um, and then never really offers a greater explanation, um, at least within the text of the book itself. So I don't know, maybe that's a place to start. What, what was your guys' like thoughts on that? 
Uh, you know, I, I think his use of voice in this book is really interesting um, because it's very understated in points. He doesn't feel compelled to kind of answer the question that, that we as veteran writers of, of our era almost consider second nature, right? It's, it's interesting to me. You know, I, I wondered that same thing, Brian. Uh, you know, other than, uh, you know, at one point, uh, uh, he, you know, he mentions, well, I, you know, I came over and I wanted to defend democracy. You know, I, I, I fell for the, the standard line being pitched in the English newspapers. Uh, and then, you know, I uh, stumbled into a far more complicated political situation, right? And then, you know, spends pages upon pages wading into that political situation. And, you know, I, want, I, I was wondering this too, and, and you know, I, I don't think it's aged necessarily well, but, you know, writing this in 1938 as World War II is, uh, hasn't kicked off yet, but it, 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 you know, inevitability of it, is, is, is starting to creep in. It's interesting to me that I, I, he didn't feel compelled to, to have to answer that, right? That, that it was, a, that he felt enough, uh, it was enough that, uh, well, I'm a political journalist. I went over there to, to cover this war. And, and next thing I know, as somebody with, you know, Imperial police experience in Burma, uh, I decided to fight and it didn't even matter. He, you know, he, uh, he ended up siding with the militia, uh, siding with the politics of the militia that he served but he's really upfront and frank that, you know, at least his during his first spin on the front there, he disagreed. Uh, he, he actually kind of believed the ideology, uh, at least internally in Spain, of the, of the Stalinist militia and found himself arguing with his, with some of his colleagues, uh, which I, you know, I found really fascinating. Yeah, you know, and, and we could, you know, we could maybe talk a bit, a bit about that later too, is how much of this book is one man reckoning with the politics that he thought led him to war, and then you know how his politics have been changed and certainly shaped shaped the work that he that that uh, he comes to produce later. Yeah, if I was his editor, I would never have let him get away with not answering the question. Of course, I would never have been George Wells' editor, of course. <laughs> but like, um, but like, I feel like I can imagine having that conversation. Like, no, you you've got to put an answer in there somewhere, and that. But the only answer, the beginning is well, it was the only conceivable thing to do. And then he, like you say, Matt, he starts to address it a little bit later. And it's like, well, if I, if somebody had asked me why I was there, I would have said I was fighting fascism. But, but then he also says that I felt myself com being completely unpolitical and non, like just not being associated with the politics at all. And then, like you say, goes on for 30 pages about what the politics are. So yeah, I mean, there's a, he, he's of two minds to, to put it charitably. He doesn't address that as an issue directly as a writer uh, until the very end of the book when he says, it is difficult to be certain about anything except what you have seen with your own eyes and consciously or unconsciously, everyone writes as a partisan. In case I have not said this somewhere earlier in the book, he hasn't, <laughs> I will say it now. Beware of my partisanship, my mistakes of fact and the disorientation inevitably caused by my having seen only one corner of events. And he, I, he just wants it all, but I guess as Orwell, he, I, I thought that he got away with it. Um, I might be wrong. It, he didn't convince you, Brian. Well, well, he wasn't Orwell yet. I mean, when he was writing this, he was only, he was only kind of Orwell, right? You know, like he was, he was on his way too. Um, so that might be, yeah, maybe part of the surprising of getting away with it. I, I don't know which edition you all had, but mine came with uh, this really famous introduction by Lionel Trilling, definitely worth the 20 pages. You know, I didn't realize that this book was uh, initially a failure in Britain. It wasn't even published in America. Much of it's kind of a claim that has come since is, you know, you can, you can, I think you can really definitely see the evolution, the education of Orwell as a writer and as a thinker 
here that, that leads to 1984, that leads to Animal Farm, this stubborn anti-authoritarian streak is that, that castigates right and left alike, you, you can see in these pages. Thinking about this book, there's, there's an, you know, it's almost kind of like the education of Eric Blair, you know, his real name. Might have, frankly, have been a better title for it, or uh, maybe a subtitle. Because I, I think it kind of falls into like three, three distinct parts, right? You, you, you kind of have this very kind of basic war memoir at the beginning, right, that, that Brian mentioned earlier of like, well, I, I'm here, I might as well fight. And you're like, <laughs> what? Wait, wait a second. <laughs> uh, the, the densest section, but really kind of, I think, the, the most layered and rich to mine, you know, political thinkers here decades later is, is are the, chap the political chapters focused on the street fighting in Barcelona, uh, which, you know, is, is really hard to wade through, but really just kind of a fascinating look at a different society, a different culture. And I think that's really where you kind of see the wheel starting to turn. And, you know, he's not a young man by any means. He's, he's I think, in his mid-30s. He, he's, he's starting to... Some of the some of the germs and seeds for uh, for his more famous works are, are 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 starting to reveal themselves here, and then you know that last third is uh, goes back to the front, uh, get shot. Details really uh, in in really interesting pages uh, uh, what it's like to get shot in the throat, and then you know he and his wife have to get out of Dodge because the secret police are after them. The book doesn't congeal uh, all that well, but but I, I think I. I came to terms with it thinking of it in almost kind of three distinct sub-books in that way. That's interesting. Can we just spend for a moment, though, a second on the fact that his wife was there? Yeah. <laughs> like, what, like, what is up with that? Like, you know, and she just drops in, like, randomly. Like, I was convalescing, whatever else. And then my wife said, we, you can't, no, you can't come home because they're looking for you. And it's like, wait wait, excuse me, what was that? Like, I just, I don't know, it's just, it's really random flavoring. But um, no, I think the, the three parts uh, that you say, man, makes sense. And uh, I mean, that's not how I, how I viewed it while I was reading it, but, but as you put it that way, it makes sense. The opening, like conventional part, actually the, what I had in my mind was, to, I guess to put it in modern age, is some of the folks that I met when I was in um, Northern Iraq at the fall of ISIS and like Americans that had volunteered to fight with the Kurds. Mm -hmm. And then you get people that go over there and they say they're journalists and then they end up picking a side or they're military veterans and they go and they try to fight on the side of the YPG. And I think what's, I mean, interesting from that dichotomy is that because uh, most of these Americans, they don't speak Kurdish. They have no background. They weren't trusted. They were like told to do guard duty and like clean out the retreats back at base while the Kurdish Murga actually did the fighting. Orwell gets like sent to the front. The fact that he doesn't speak Spanish and has no idea what's going on doesn't seem to be an impediment for them giving him a few grenades and saying like, when everybody runs this way, you run that way too. I mean, that was a, a the, the, the politics of that moment. And I think it's possible that that's one of the reasons he says, he, he writes about it being one of the reasons that it was such an impactful experience to him. It was probably conducive to that. So he shows up in Spain and there's this, I found especially the, uh, the, the moments when he's talking about what, the, what it looks like, the, the composition of the militia, how leadership works. And, and he sort of, he, he, he becomes, he gets progressively more leadership within the militia as he proves himself as a, a competent human capable of staying awake at, light, at, at night, which is basically, you know, uh, everything you need to, to, to be a good officer, uh, <laughs> everything and only. Um, and, and 
and he talks about how like like how frustrating it is for him to have to argue with somebody for five minutes to convince them to do a thing, but ultimately they'll do that thing. And and that's probably again, you know, why why it worked for him is because what they were doing was this they they weren't just staging a revolution or or um or a counter-revolution, I guess, a counterinsurgency against the fascists. Uh the, the group that he was a part of was um, quite explicitly engaged in um, a, a culture building project, a, polit a politics building project that required equality. And so it was, and it was also, Trotsky was an internationalist. So I think probably there was some sense that this was what was needed to, uh, to, to make the whole thing work. Yeah, no, I, 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 uh, I, I think that's right. I mean, it's interesting that I, I, th I thought of myself thinking of, of uh, the Kurdish front as well. You know, uh, our friend Jen Percy had a really interesting uh, New York Times Magazine article a couple years ago about those American volunteers, and I can't remember if it was in that piece or maybe a similar one that I read from someone else. Where you know they 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 considered themselves kind of the spiritual inheritors of the Lincoln Brigade, the American volunteers who fought in the Spanish Civil War, uh, and then but then of course the uh, the Kurds over there they you know, didn't care. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, there, you know there, there was and also the fact that like actual you know. Green Berets were, were operating, you know, in, in that sphere. It's great that it's great that they considered themselves the the inheritors of the Spanish Civil War. But you know, the the politics were different in that way, and and the home front was so close that uh, Mrs. Orwell uh, could stay in Barcelona. Um, you know, I did my college thesis on this, uh, so I'm cheating a little bit. But uh, you know, there was like this famous hotel in Madrid where like Hemingway and and journalists from all over the world would like they literally get drunk on the roof and watch. It watched the fascists, you know, shell the hills nearby. I mean, it, it was it, it was this bizarre, perverse kind of half war in that regard um, until you were on the front. Uh, quick aside about Mrs. Orwell, uh, cop, uh, his his boss in the in the militia, the Belgian. Um, well, uh, it's not in these pages, but she ha she had uh, had an affair with him during all this. Uh, he he didn't get killed, you know, when uh, Orwell's finishing this book up. He's saying that he's still, you know, cop is still jailed. They're not sure. They haven't heard from him in a while. And you just kind of wondered, is some part of him just hoping uh, that the secret police got him? Probably, right? I mean, now I want to reread re -read that and see how much irony there is. <laughs> and if he knew about it at the time. I, uh, I just have this idea of like the weird half war. Yes, like it, it is. I don't know. There's a lot of that weird half war. It's, it's not just the, the Hemingway in Madrid. Like the, the one line, um, Adrian, you were saying about how it's... Uh, you know, it, it was a, a building project, a societal building project. And I, I was taken from when they weren't at the front where they weren't shooting, that they had like a megaphone and they were trying to like convert the other side. And I, his line is, but at the beginning, it dismayed all of us. It made us feel that the Spaniards were not taking this war of theirs sufficiently seriously. <laughs> you know, can you, yes. the idea of trying to convert your enemy instead of shooting them. And he even uses the exclamation mark. You know, so yeah, it is odd. But I, Matt, if I can hijack again, I want to ask you a question because you've done, like you said, uh, research, but also so much on Hemingway, et cetera. One critique I read of Amish to Catalonia is that there's, it's not that there's anything wrong with the book, mm -hmm. but that it's the only book about the Spanish Civil War that most people will read. And so it is woefully incomplete and just, most of the events that make the Spanish Civil War what it was are not contained in this book. Yeah, I don't think there's know, a question there. What's the? No, I, I I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, he got there late. Uh, you know, the, the big events of the Spanish Civil War 
uh, from the Spanish perspective, were Franco initiating the coup, uh, the defense of Madrid, which took place in the summer of 1936, so six months before this book even starts, uh, is, is, is where they kind of really held the line, right? And, and that's where you'll see all, all the kind of famous propaganda posters uh, that you'll still see today, uh, many of them are, are from the defense of Madrid, right? And, and many of the famous sayings come from that. July 1936, even in Barcelona, uh, he makes a big deal out of this, this second wave of street fighting. And if you, if you catch it in this section, uh, an old man jokes that it's, it's, I think, July 19th all over again. Uh, well, that was, that was when the initial anarchists revolted and seized you know, the telephone company, seized, seized some of the, the various utility programs and, and formed their own militia. He, he's kind of a late arrival in that way. The other big one that's well known uh, is For Whom the Bell Tolls, uh, which completely uh, uh, avoids the politics. It got heavy criticism when it was published, particularly from American volunteers, for that reason. That Hemingway, um, who tried to write political novels before in the 30s, and uh, they're good, but they're you know they're they're not his elite stuff. Um, and he was trying to get back his his championship belt, really, when he wrote for whom the bell tolls, uh, shied away from that stuff. So you know the two big bookend books of this conflict, and there there are like you know kind of not dissimilar to Iraq and Afghanistan that you know a lot of memoirs. Uh, uh, each everybody wrote one. Everyone wrote, <laughs> yeah, and, and everybody has something unique to offer. But uh, you know, the big ones uh, were written by writers, uh, you know, really were more famous for for other works. And uh, you know, those are the ones, it, you know, at least a, a lay reader is 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 going to start with. And, and it, it, you know, I think I think that's exactly right. That's the other thing, right? <laughs> like, like these these are uh, uh, these aren't Amer you know these are Amer an American and a Brit writing writing in English. So yeah, I, I, I can especially if this was something near and dear to my heart. As a Spaniard, I could I could totally understand why why they'd be frustrated by that. As a, a a a British citizen and also a British patriot, I don't know about nationalist. He seems embedded in Britishness. Sure. Um, how he writes about Spain and the Spanish is extraordinary and probably wouldn't fly by today's standards. It's a bit patronizing at points. Yeah. <laughs> Slightly. <laughs> Yeah. One of the things I wanted to highlight, there's a, a section here that you, the half war or the idea of being able to observe a war from a, a hotel roof uh, reminded me of this quote uh, when I guess they were looking, they searched his wife's room, yet all this time they never searched the bed. My wife was lying in bed all the while. Obviously, there might have been half a dozen submachine guns under the mattress, not to mention a library of Trotskyist documents under the pillow. If the detectives made no move to touch the bed, never even looked underneath it. I cannot believe that this is a regular feature of the Ogpu routine. One must remember that the police were almost entirely under communist control, and these men were probably Communist Party members themselves. But they were also Spaniards, and to turn a woman out of bed was just a little too much for them. This part of the job was silently dropped, making the whole search meaningless. Yeah, there's, there's the, yeah, he, it's, it's a funny book. He, he, he's much funnier here than he is in 1984 Animal Farm. There's just like these moments of like dark irony, like, you know, he, he, the dark irony that, you know, we're all familiar with. It, it reminded me of Robert Graves uh, in that kind of like, mm. the, like the, the British sensibility version of that. Like uh, when he's talking about all the old weapons on both, between both the fascists and the anti-fascists, when he's talking about the, the old shell with a nickname of its own, which traveled daily to and fro, never exploding. Right, uh, but they, you know, they just they they just kept sharing this one this one mortar shell that would would, would forever go go between line line to line and never kill anyone. Uh, and there, I mean, there's there's all kinds of moments like that. Uh, I'm sure you all had had your favorites too. Well, I mean, this is where so I have one hot take from this book, and this this segues perfectly 
into my my hot take about homage to Catalonia, which is that now I've been doing a lot of reading about like story, like story and like a very basic level, you know, and, and how there's only like, you know, there's multiple theories, there's only seven stories and the difference between this and that and, you know, monster stories and whatever else. My hot take is that this is a comedy. And what I mean by that is in the very traditional style where um, you have an initial situation, things that get more and more confusing, uh, there, there's constant plot twists, there's little changes here and there, and then eventually by the end of the story, all of these extraordinarily confusing things are all resolved with one very simple event, which puts everything into perspective, and then essentially all's well that ends well. And so, I mean, there are like tons of truly comic, like funny things that you mentioned that like I was trying to chase a guy down a trench and can't quite stab him like you can't quite get the bayonet like quite that far when they're in Barcelona and they're like don't shoot at me and he's like fine well do you got any beer yeah I've right. got beer and like and then they, they agree to stop shooting at each other but in in that like very traditional comedy framework and then he's shot and then in the clarifying moment he says afterwards that he can finally see Spain with clear eyes. And what's his idea? It's time to leave. Right. And he immediately leaves and goes back to, you know, bucolic England. And that that's his, that's his clarifying moment. So tell me how I'm wrong. Is this really a traditional comedy? Mrs. Orwell's side piece, uh, Major, Major Cop, uh, at one point, I'm looking for the, the exact quote, but he, he says that exactly when Orwell joins him at the front line. He says, this isn't, this isn't a war. This is a comic opera interrupted by occasional death. I think it's three, three months in at the front. A few, few soldiers get killed, but it's mostly it's, it's, it's a, you know, those are chapters yes. devoted to misery, right? Uh, they're, they're just trying to, they're just, on both, you know, both sides are just trying to survive this, this winter because um, the, the main part of the war is being fought elsewhere. There's kind of a sense that they're all play acting at this. And you know, that, that's when Cop says this is a comic opera. So I don't know, that, make, that makes sense to me at first blush. I mean, despite the fact that he was shot, nobody ever actually feels in danger, like you say, at least mostly to me. Like they, they managed to have, they go over the top of the trench uh, at one point and I don't know, like it, even, even in that moment, it does, it feels, I don't know, it doesn't feel like anybody's particularly in danger until he goes back to the front in the moment that he's actually shot. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I, di I didn't have that. It, you know, it's not um, all quiet on the Western Front, right? Right, right. There are another couple supporting uh, ideas for that, one of which being he, he helps buttress that in the beginning, like you said, during the winter, people, the, people are always shooting at each other, especially um, friends are shooting at him sort of mistakenly. So there's a lot of mistaken identity and always missing. So you're, you're, you get accustomed to this idea that when people shoot, they always miss badly. You miss the other people badly. The other people are kind of missing you. Um, there are tragedies, people shoot themselves. People get injured by their own weapons. Um, and then, and the other thing I was thinking is, is the, the, one, the one moment of, of, of um, where, where things feel truly serious. It's not that Siegfried Sassoonish uh, run up to the trench, the sort of comical and heroic, they're going into the trench and things kind of work out. It's when people are looking for him. As I mentioned earlier, like that, that, that idea when he comes back to Barcelona, POUM is being suppressed. There is this kind of slowly building urgency. It's also guarded by the idea that but these are Spanish police. Like this isn't the Gestapo. This is the 
Ogpu, and they're kind of not doing it very well. So if you want to get out, you can. And the people who get caught, it's kind of their own fault. I didn't know about the the, the cop, the major cop um, thing. Uh, so so maybe that's another sort of subtle dig at cop that like he gets he gets caught. Well, that's you know nobody gets caught, but only the guy with my wife, I right, guess, or something. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, I mean, from a storytelling perspective, I mean, it's 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 not a great book, right? Like uh, by itself, I think for 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 some of the reasons you, you all are mentioning here, right? Like, uh, you know, at the end, a number of his colleagues do get killed, right? Uh, Bob Smilly, uh, I went up and looked him up, like, would have been a fascinating, like, if we'd spent time with him before, like, throughout the course of the book, that could have been a real tragic death that, you know, this young, Glasgow-born, high-born, uh, Cambridge-educated idealist that Orwell meets over there, argues with sometimes, agrees with other times, fights, fights courageously, you know, and, and then just disappears. And, and we as readers are experiencing that alongside the narrator uh, for pages and pages. And then, you know, when they find out, you know, he's died under mysterious circumstances in a dungeon, you're gutted. But none of that happens. We just, <laughs> right. We just, uh, it's just kind of thrown it there at the end. You're just like, oh, that, that sucks. Uh, but like, it could have been a really powerful thing if we didn't spend any time with, with uh, Mr. Smilly before then, before that. You know, that, that's one example of, of many. I mean, there's so many really fascinating elements here. But I think, uh, you know, from a, uh, not to, not, not to go down the, uh, the stupid craft rabbit hole or whatever, you know, Orwell is, I think, still kind of a young, young book writer at this point you can still you can tell he's much more comfortable in journalistic bursts and he hasn't quite figured out how to tell kind of a longer story and you know what that takes in terms of you know setting a stage and, and not not you know not trying to win every paragraph not trying to win every page but but kind of letting letting something bigger burn 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 for a while he, he's he's just not you know he's not he's not developed there yet as a, as a writer and you know He's he's trying to he's trying to turn this thing out in a few months to to raise public awareness about this war because one of the one of the other interesting things about this is he doesn't know how it turns out we do of course but a lot of, although to his credit a lot of his forecasts do do seem to prove correct yeah I mean I mean that's this is one of those books where it's uh, it's all worth it for the last line right <laughs> yes it's so, it's, it's so good yeah where can I can I spoil the ending for everybody where's the this is like the longest sentence in history. Down here it was, uh, because he goes back to England. Down here it was still the England I had known in my childhood. The railway cuttings smothered in wildflowers. The deep meadows where the great shining horses browse and meditate. The slow moving streams bordered by willows. The green bosoms of the elms. The larkspurs in the cottage gardens. And then the huge peaceful wilderness of outer London the barges on the Myrie River, the familiar streets, the posters telling of cricket matches and royal weddings, the men in boiler hats, the pigeons in Trafalgar Square, the red buses, the blue policemen, all sleeping the deep, deep sleep of England, from which I sometimes fear that we shall never wake till we are jerked out of it by the roar of bombs. Not, not bad if you can do it, <laughs> I guess. You know, like, and it, it was, like you say, I mean, Yes, there was a sense maybe that World War II was coming or another war was coming, um, but that the Blitz was coming is, you know, is definitely prophetic. Yeah, he was, he was on it. For all the, the flaws and faults in, in the book's construction, its vision, I think, is pretty incredible. It's certainly not isolated to this book. It's part of what makes Orwell Orwell. 
right? Is even you know post World War II because because of the experiences uh, he, he went through here in Spain. You know, he 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 forecasts the 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 looming profound threat of communism in, in a time that a lot of uh, a, a lot of the lefty intelligentsia didn't want to hear it. You know, they still believed in in, in the grand dream and that the, uh, the Soviet Union was going to be able to see it through. Uh, and you know, there there are glimmers of th that disdain for the the progressive the progressive intelligentsia even in this book. It's, it's, it's yeah, always I mean, one of my favorite things of, of, of reading Orwell is just how much he hates his, his own class and people. Well, yeah, I mean, I was, eventually he figures out to, how to combine the foresight and the comicness. I was thinking, um, I read Burmese Days a few years ago, and I, I mean, that book kind of gets lost in its plot. But the thing that really sticks with me is what clueless, happy colonialists the Brits are. And I mean, there is a certain comicness to their cluelessness. Um, in that book. And I think the comicness, like, you know, sticks around eventually, you know, he's writing Animal Farm, which is, you know, comic in some way, too. So, yeah, the, the disdain for authority. I know, Matt, that that just, you know, tickles your heart. Right? That's, uh... <laughs> I, yeah, I, I might be a bit biased in that regard. That's, that's fair. <laughs> well, and if the book has uh, relevance today beyond its um, uh, importance as a historical document and also just as a good read. I mean, I, I also want to say that I was very pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed it. I think, you know, Orwell's talent carries him through a, uh, a poorly constructed and, and hastily written. I mean, by definition, we know it was hastily written sure. book, um, but gosh, I mean, he can write. Oh, there's some um, killer, killer lines here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at the sentence yeah. level, right? Like he is, he is destroying it at the sentence level. I, there was lots of, I'm not a big underliner. I was underlying like crazy in this book. Yeah, I, but so I think, I and mean, the, the thing that I kept going back to, the, the, the two thoughts that I had most frequently while reading this, on the one hand, how quickly a thing like this can happen. And I mean, this was before the internet, you know, this is when people had telegraphs and telephones, but you know, a, a civil war is upon a country before it knows it. I mean, I don't know. I don't know the history of Spain well enough to say whether there were um, huge alarm bells before this. I, I think Franco had actually been imprisoned at one point for sort of maybe being um, connected to a coup, or maybe he didn't get a promotion or something. Um, so, so I guess the idea of a coup was was more urgent and imminent than it is today, uh, at least in Europe. Um, you know, a coup is almost unthinkable uh, in in Western Europe or, or the United States. But it must have happened quickly. And then those parts in the street that, uh, that we were talking about, the street fighting, where it's this weird blend of, of we're on the same side. Like, we're not really shooting at each other. Do you have a beer? No, I don't. Oh, he was a good guy because he didn't give the order to open fire on us. But then it changes. And, and then your side are either people, the people imprisoning the other people, clearing the streets and, and knocking in doors, or you're the side that's being imprisoned. And I don't know, it's sort of uh, horrifying reading it and, and thinking how, you know, it must have happened, even accounting for Orwell's partisanship, more or less the way he wrote it. I mean, that feels very sensible to me that it, it, it plays out where one day it's, it's one way, then the next day the, the streets are empty, the tram cars are standing where people left them because the shooting had started. And then a week later, you know, it, 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 it goes to the next phase. So I don't know. I, I feel like there are a lot of questions like that out there uh, today for, for us too. It, it, it seems far more 
um, I don't know, relevant than it should. Uh, I wish I wish reading this were just like, wow, you know, must have sucked to be in Spain back then. <laughs> Never gonna happen here. No, that's that's exactly it, Adrian. Uh, when I first read this uh, in college uh, as, as part of my thesis, it, it was it, it was exactly that, right? Like I still I still had my own. I mean, I was younger, and I still kind of had a very binary American sensibility about politics. So, uh, you know, I had a real real difficult time kind of wading into the into the nuances and the, the triangularity that's kind of at the center of this. And I remember thinking like, well, you know, I'm glad that would never happen. That kind of political fracture would never happen in modern America. <laughs> uh, and, you know, yeah, there, there, there's some parallel, you know, like, like any analogy, this is, this is deeply imperfect. But there are some parallels there for sure. Like, like uh, I, I think it'd be hard for anybody, any thinking person to, to read this book in contemporary America and, and see the ferocious infighting between the anarchists and the communists uh, that is, uh, and, not, and not think liberals and leftists the residual anger left over from the 2016 primary. Franco was a, li a literal fascist army was, you know, coming across the country of Spain. Liberals and leftists, you know, you, all you have to do is spend five minutes on Twitter and you'll see some new front of, of, of that fight here. And, you know, it, it, it almost seems like beside the point of whether or not Trump is, Trump is an actual fascist or if he's, you know, just an authoritarian clown or an aspirant one, He's the threat. He's the he's the he's the threat that should unite the liberals and the lefties, but they cannot. We you know, and I've been guilty of this as anybody because you, you, you get sucked into these these partisan fights, and you know your talking points, and you know your foxholes, uh, and you you know, uh, and I'm as guilty of this, or have been as guilty of this as anyone. At least right now, here uh, in this summer of madness, a temporary peace seems to have been brokered by most of American liberals and American lefties. But, you know, I guess that both of you would agree uh, that we all know this is a temporary piece that uh, hopefully lasts till November may very well pick back up the day after the election. Is, is that a fair assessment? I mean, I think so. But I think it's also interesting. There's there's the one militia that doesn't know what side they're on. They might be communist <laughs> or they might be anarchist. Right, and I sure. think I think that's also true is that obviously the labels uh, fit imperfectly and that's true in the United States as well. But I mean, there's always the question of when the, when you have the external threat, um, is it like, like what's the model? Do you turn, do you fight the external threat or do you turn on each other? Like, is it Star Trek or is it walking dead? And it turns out that America is walking dead. And that's not just true with Trump, that's true with like a disease, which is like truly an alien, non-human threat. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. to like this is as close as we're gonna get, I think, to an alien invasion. It is 2020. There's still four months, four and a half months <laughs> left or whatever. But like we have the equivalent of that and we've decided to turn on each other. Mm -hmm. And and I think that depends how political you want to get. But you look at some polls and like, well, who's your first choice and who's your second choice? And some people it's like, well, my my first choice is my lefty or leftist. And then my second choice is actually the guy on the other side. And it's like, well, whose side is anyone on? Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I think that's actually part of the lesson is like in the, especially the Barcelona fighting, whose side is anyone on? And does anybody even know? And who's being repressed at what time? And it, it was confusing to him. And it, you know, at times it's, you know, the equivalent of that is confusing now. Yeah. And, and, the, and the scary thing is frankly, Amer Americans, uh, are, uh, my read are generally meaner than the Spaniards that Orwell depicts. You know, I, I hope we would uh, share beers in that kind of uh, confused situation with, uh, with a different militia, but I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of skeptical. I completely agree. I mean, I think in the, the, one of the things that's frightening 
again, given that this is this is the 1930s and Orwell is writing about a different time and a different place in a very uh, patronizing way about the Spanish. I don't even, I mean, I've, I've heard this about Spain and the culture of Manana and I've been in Italy before, but I don't know if they, you know, if that actually goes over to to fighting. I don't think this isn't, this isn't the study of the Spanish military and, you know, thousands died in, in, in given battles and, you know, hundreds of thousands died, I think, over the course of the Civil War. So they certainly fought bravely and well. Um, so I wouldn't want to say, you know, like, oh, it's just the Spanish. But on the other hand, you know, given, given the choice of, of uh, being in an apartment where the German Gestapo is coming for, for you or the Spanish Gestapo, or the American fill in the blank, you know, extrajudicial DOJ contractors who aren't technically part of any organization, but sort of fall under DHS or they're on like a three month gig for DHS or whatever else. I mean, I'd want the Spanish. I'd be like, okay, I probably have like a 20% chance there. But the Germans and the Americans, you know, they're going to go right for the door. They're going to search everything. They're going to find you. And they're going to haul you out. I mean, hell, right. the Americans have thermal scopes now. That's <laughs> right. You can't even run in the night. Um, so yeah, the Americans are us, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's that, it's, that, it's that now classic uh, uh, gif, uh, the, the, fat, the fat cop from a Hot Fuzz looking at his partner going, are we the baddies? <laughs> right, right. Can we talk about the other side for a second? I have a question yeah. for Adrian. There's two lines in this book that made me think of you because of your critique of the right. And one is where he talks about how the popular front was a swindle, but Franco was an anachronism and was only supported by millionaires and romantics. Yeah. And then the other one is, is that he decided that Franco did not so much want to impose fascism as restore feudalism. And you've written and thought a lot, Adrian, about how what we call fascism, like especially when it comes to like Silicon Valley tech and you know American corporate structures and et cetera, et cetera. It's actually feudalism, and it's not any of these other words that appropriately describe it. So, yeah, thoughts? that's well, you know, I haven't thought too much about it recently, but uh, and this is something that a, a friend of a mutual friend of ours, Jacob Siegel, uh, was uh, in, in conversation with him. I was able to sort of refine my thinking about it. Uh, he's the first person that I ever talked to back in, I think it was 2015 or 2016, to talk about um, the the dark enlightenment. And you hear this with, uh, um, you know, in the New York Times, like the dark web, the intellectual dark web, the sort of counter-revolutionary, uh, what they call conservative intellectualism. And it's not, it's not fascism either, like fascism, so, you know, it, it's, I'm going to jump around here a little bit, but, you know, fascism is, uh, and, and Timothy Snyder talked a lot about this, like it was an attractive ideology in the first part of the 20th century. It drew on futurism. It drew on the mechanization of society. It was a, a utopian idea. And, uh, and again, it was, uh, it, People use that word to describe, because it's such a vague concept and Umberto Eco sort of like sketched it out, they, they try to explain it in ways that make it sound post facto to explain it as bad. And we know that it's bad because we saw the consequences of fascism. But for people who were living it at the time, um, I, I don't think it was necessarily bad. For good people, obviously it was bad because Orwell and Hemingway and a whole lot of other you know, great thinkers and humanists were able to immediately identify what the, uh, what it augured for society. But it was, uh, you know, it was the ideology 
of the factory, not of the factory owned by people, but of the factory of the train, of the, of the single wing airplane. And what Franco was doing was not right. fascism. I mean, he was allied with these people because you know, the, the people who own the factories you know, want the factory to continue. And I, I don't know enough, I'm not a historian about fascism. I'm not a philosopher either to be able to sketch out a, a more intelligent um, description of this, but I know the fascists backed Franco because he was essentially in line with their ideas. And there's definitely a lot more to be said about how the fascists and the monarchists and the feudalists get along very well together, far better than the leftists and the left do, uh, the leftists and the liberals do. Um, certainly- that's a, that's a, That liberal. sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But, but yeah, it was, it was a counter revolution. I mean, it was a revolution that was essentially a counter revolution. They wanted the church to have more power. They wanted the landowners to have the land. That's feudalism. That's pre-enlightenment. Um, and fascism draws on the enlightenment in the same way that, the, that communism does uh, in different ways. There are, I'm not saying this is a defense of fascism by any means. I hate it. I'd be among the first put against the wall and shot, I'm sure, or disappeared. Um, but uh, let's give it its due so we don't underestimate it. Uh, yeah, I, that's, that's spot on. Um, I, there's, uh, most historians that, that focus on the Spanish Civil War uh, talk about how at least after the war was settled, Franco uh, wasn't a quote unquote fascist. It, it was really just kind of a, a traditional dictatorship with strong Catholic Church overtones, you know, what, what the exact poli-sci term is, I, I don't know. But of course, then he, you know, despite being uh, winning the war, thanks to, you know, the tanks and airplanes uh, from Germany and Italy, uh, he, of course, famously uh, kept Spain out of World War II, which turned out to be the right call. Uh, you know, if we're giving, if we're giving these people our due, a good call, uh, uh, General Nusmo <laughs> Franco, for, uh, 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 Letting your buddies back you, and then when they needed your help, completely saying sorry, got to put my country back together. So um, yeah, just just wanted to echo echo some of your points there about whether he whether they were technically a, a, a fascist nation or not. Yeah, and the the threat that we're we're looking at today is is not actually the threat of fascism, unless if you're I mean, of course, if you're on if you're on the far left, you believe that fascism is here, and that's what we are that we are a fascist country. Mm -hmm. I don't agree with that, um, which is why I'm not welcome really on the left anymore, perhaps somewhat like Orwell. Um, but the, I do think that you know, what we're looking at today with, with Trump, who I believe is a despot, and I've said that from the beginning, and I believe that you know, he would be welcome in, his, his ideal role was probably as an Egyptian pharaoh whose, whose word is law and brooks no dissent. He would be at his most satisfied then, not as, at his happiest. And that's not, again, that's not fascism. fascism requires organization, it requires a lot of energy and effort and, and moving in a direction. The direction that Trump likes to move in is toward the golf course or toward, uh, toward his bed for a nap. And, uh, and I think the real danger is that in destroying a lot of the great civic organizations and, and history that we have in America and, and erasing their credibility deliberately or undermining their credibility, what he's doing is he's actually creating the space for fascists or you know very busy and energetic folks like Hitler to come uh, come along in the future and nobody's gonna like that yeah but I, th I think what you're making an argument for then is if we're trying to draw parallels between this book and the modern day is that this is where the parts don't quite fit together because if you want if you find parallels between the modern left and the left in the book and in fighting and who's actually on which side and that kind of stuff 
the opposition doesn't look quite right, right? Like, I agree. I don't think that Trump is organized enough to be fascist. Uh, it requires mobilization of people for this happening. Um, the populism on, you know, that is supporting Trump, you might put the populism on the side of, you know, on Orwell's side here. So it's like an odd mixture of an, an odd combination there. So I, I don't know. I think that it's easier to fight fascists or that's the, maybe the romanticism. That's why, you know, the labeling. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't quite line up, which is why it's also funny that communists and fascists end up fighting each other. They're both about mobilizing people in the interest of the state, you know? So in some ways, like, the, there, there's more common ground, but in a few years, um, you know, obviously the fight spreads. So I don't know, this is, this is the danger is it's not, we sometimes act like there's two sides, but actually there's so many facets of both sides that they only sometimes end up meeting on the front, sure. I think. It's that anarchist strain of this conflict that I think is just the hardest thing for modern readers, particularly modern readers from, uh, from Western Europe or states to kind of wrap our heads around, because it's just this tradition that seems very unique to Spain, particularly strong and pervasive in Catalonia. And yeah, I, I don't know, I don't think there is much, I mean, you know, are, 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 they, are they the equivalent of, of the populist right that, that is, is with Trump ride or die? Do we see, just see splashes of that, like in the Pacific Northwest? you know, in, in places like Portland and Seattle, where you get those weirdos that they don't really have a clear ideology. They're just kind of against power. The people that tear down Ulysses S. Grant, and you're like, what the hell? That doesn't make sense. And, <laughs> you know, you, you, could, you, could, you could spend hours trying to figure it out. And you're not going to get kind of a coherent ideological reason, because uh, it was a statue of an old dude with a horse, right? And, and then, like, uh, people with too much time on their hands on Twitter the next day will try to apply some reasoning. But no, it's just a mob trying to wrap my head around the anarchists' role in all of this and what their power was and really where it came from was hard, you know, was really hard. But then again, it, you know, Orwell straight up admits it was hard for him and it's going to be hard for English readers of his time to understand that aspect of it. So, you know, why would an ocean and, and 70, 75 years lend, lend me any clarity there? Yeah, I mean, anarchists are opportunists. And so they, it's the, it's the opportunity of the fighting uh, in Spain, but it's also the opportunity of the chaos in Portland, mm -hmm. um, you know, where it starts with the Black Lives Matter protests and it ends with anarchists, um, you know, trying to burn a building down. And uh, the, the two are, were maybe shared the same real estate for a brief period of time, but that's not, um, that doesn't mean you can, uh, doesn't mean that they're all on the same side, which I guess, again, goes back to Orwell, is that right. who, whose side was anybody on? Is, uh, when, when the anarchists are on your side, uh, you know, they're kind of on nobody's side, right? Well, this is another area where there's a little bit of, we have to be careful with language. And I'm not, by saying that, I'm, I'm also going to say that I'm not, I know enough about this to know that there's, as you said, Brian, a, a ton of complexity and nuance that I'm missing. Um, but I think the anarchists that he's talking about in Catalonia are what it really is, is it's, it's more like anarcho, uh, it's either anarcho syndicalism or like, I think it's anarcho syndicalism. And, and, and so it's, it's not anarchists as in let's tear it all down and let's build something up later. It's more like, um, uh, it, it's really similar to what we think of when we, what we talk, when we say communist, it's more, it, I think it's more like what the communists probably wanted to do 
uh, before they became authoritarian. So not the Stalinists, but maybe like the Marxist-Leninists. And I know there's a ton of Marxists within the anarchist movement. And what they're really doing is trying to collectivize um, econo economic modules, collectivize military modules, hence the militia uh, behaving the way that it does. And, and it's not, the, the anarchists we have today are, are really more, as far as I know, I mean, I, I don't know, and I could be wrong about this, more like, like the, 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 anything that you do against the system is good and justified because we live in a fascist system. So we're constantly at war with everything and everyone. But in the context of Spain, the anarchists are a little bit different. I, that probably didn't come off right, but I'm gonna keep it in anyway. Well, I, th I, think, I, I think it makes sense, at least on my surface read as well, because the anarchists in Barcelona collectivized the public utilities they controlled, right? They collect uh, the anarchists outside, uh, collectivized the farmlands. And then, you know, uh, and it's, it, again, it's just, he kind of used, used the term communist and communism so interchangeably it, uh, I had to go back and re read when I, when I was focused enough to do so. But sometimes he's using it as kind of the sweeping ideology, anybody on the far left. A lot of times he was using it uh, as the people who were first and foremost loyal to the common term, who fascinatingly enough, at least according to Orwell, the USSR did not want the Spanish communists to win the civil war because they didn't, they didn't think the Spanish Soviet Spain uh, would succeed. Right. And they, w they were worried that if they backed it too openly, uh, it would cause all kinds of issues uh, in their alliance with France, for example, you know, cause it, because this, at this point, uh, Germany was an enemy. And so they, they'd aligned with France in, in preparation for the big war to come. So there, I wish he'd come up with like a cleaner, like if he just used socialist and for one thing and social communist for another, I think it would, a lot of these concerns and confusions would, would have been avoided. Yeah, I, I, I think the, the anarchists in here would not agree much with the, the, the type of burn it all down 80s punk anarchists that we think of in, kind of in contemporary American imagination. I would say three quick things to that. One is he's got this great line, aren't we all socialists? So to go to your point, Matt, that like, why couldn't he um, just use that term? He also talks about how the communists say that we can't talk about the revolution until we've won the war. And then other groups want this, you know, moral, the moral authority or the, like the teaching and the ideology, like it's central to the war. So I don't know, again, more to your point that the, uh, whether all this stuff is on a gradient as opposed to really being in opposition uh, based upon how we use the words today. But I guess the final thing is you said though, that like, wouldn't it have been better if he had been able to tease this out? He tried for like page after page after page that I slogged through and like you read twice and he didn't succeed. And I think that that's true to the experience. And you know, that's the fact that he tried and failed says something genuine and authentic about what was really going on uh, at, at the time there. So not, not to, preview that it was that the movement was doomed from the start or something but a person with a mind like Orwell's on the ground for that long sympathetic as a journalist trying to figure out does the best he can reaches to a point where he says aren't we all socialists then I, I guess that's the good summary sure you know I know we're being crushed on time but one thing I, I just wanted to mention uh, really wanted to mention was how great would he have been at Twitter? Because there's that, there's that part uh, in one of the political chapters where he takes to task uh, other journalists for uh, repeating communist propaganda, uh, specifically daily worker propaganda. 
uh, though they work for a number of different papers. And the way he just kind of systematically reveals them to be lazy and inept and never, never, set, never goes for the zinger, uh, says, well, I'm sure they were acting in good faith. And then, like, then proves that they were just repeating ta- uh, lazy political talking points, uh, and, and names them, and names them. Like, you know, it, it was it was the 1938 equivalent of adding some adding somebody, <laughs> and then saying, you know, uh, what bless your heart. Uh, he just he just savages these people. Yeah, I I can't help but think that maybe that's what makes everything today feel so close to this is that there there is so much hostility and acrimony. And you see it, but unless you're there at a protest or a demonstration or whatever else, unless you happen to be there and seeing it, I guess maybe to his final point, you know, it's hard to truly understand what's going on because, you know, everything, everything gets mediated. And so you know, one of the things about Twitter is, you know, famously, and, and I was off Twitter for a long time and I was far healthier for it. And now I'm back on Twitter and, you know, just a matter of time before I'm off Twitter again. Embrace the suck. And, you know, it's because because you get angry because because there is no talking into certain quarters because Twitter itself has become incredibly divided and you can't on a certain level there's no there's no sort of say, reaching across the aisle and saying you know you're right but there's also you know two two si- at least two sides you know the 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 liberal left and then the the reactionary right. Um, that are taking very different stances on things like the protests. Sure. Um, I hope this is all it is. I hope it's it's sort of posturing or talking, and it it uh, it changes or goes away. I don't know. That's. I, I guess my final thought on that is that um, what I constantly console myself with is that Twitter is not real life, and Twitter is Twitter, and real life is something else. Um, and so I guess while I agree with you, Matt, that I think you'd be good at it. The um, when we're trying to apply it to today, eventually like those zingers turned into actual fighting. And so like, I guess to go back to the very beginning of our conversation, like imagining the acrimony actually turning into real life um, on one hand still feels really far away. And on the other, it's like, well, everything else in 2020 has happened and everything else feels really familiar. So yeah, well, that, I don't know. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of, I think it's kind of like that, that opening chapter in, in, with Barcelona, right? Where, Everybody's kind of running around confused. They're not surprised that something has happened, but they're s- simultaneously surprised that violence has happened, right? And and uh, I, I, you know, I, I think you know, anytime you know, pick pick a pick a news item from the last three or four months. I've you know, more often than not, I've had that mix of surprise and also surprise at my own surprise. Like, well, of course, if these last couple of years have taught taught us anything is that we're not above history. We're not better than, than old, old lessons learned. Why wouldn't we just, you know, put a, a 21st century star spangled version on something that 20 years ago, we all thought we, we were better than and, and it had moved past. Yeah. When he gets shot, he thinks it's an accident, <laughs> right. you know, despite yeah. the fact that he's in the war at the front. And so I think maybe that's like the perfect analogy, right? Like you're in the situation and when it happens, it's like, wait, is this really happening? Right. Um, and yeah, all those things you don't think can happen, happen. Speaking of that, and I know we need to uh, probably wrap things up for, for the listeners, if not for ourselves, because I could talk for another hour easily uh, with you guys about this. I, I, I wanted to ask both Brian 
what you think about U.S. special operations being in Syria based on your story. And then Matt, of course, Empire City, you know, if, 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 this, if this all feels like, like, man, now I kind of wish I hadn't written about all this stuff that's kind of minus the superheroes coming to pass. You go first, Matt. Uh, good question. I would say, I, you know, when I first started writing Empire City in 2016, you know, one of the motivations was it to be a, fore, a forewarning, right? Like if, if the events depicted in Empire City in terms of kind of fractious dystopian infighting are at a 10, you know, I saw when I first started writing it, I saw America probably at a, at a 5.5. And you know maybe could even envision us getting to a to a six point five or even a seven by the time it, it published. Did I envision it us being at an eight uh, or an eight point five when it came out? Uh, no. Uh, have I many times, uh, particularly mo most recently when I saw the Portland Wall of Veterans exchanging blows with you know Department of Homeland Security guys, many of whom uh, are certainly military veterans themselves? Did I? simultaneously want to punch myself in the face and pat myself on the back <laughs> i did yes but no my you know it was i swear it was meant to be a forewarning not, not a preview yeah again like who's on who's on which side so i think uh adrian the story you mean is a short story that i wrote for the um anthology that you and i edited uh, which is fiction and be well it doesn't begin but in there uh U.S. forces land uh, at Tardis in Syria and invade. And so when, how long would have, I would have written that three years ago, four years ago, 2016, 2017, somewhere in there. Uh, and it just seemed obvious to me. Like I was trying to pick the next place to invade uh, and it seemed like a matter of time. Did I think that it would be happening like as the book was being published already? <laughs> no. Um, but I, I don't know. I, it did not seem that far-fetched, and I guess, obviously, it wasn't. Well, I think something both of you get at, and maybe this is something that fiction does very well, is, and this is something that I, I suppose we all, uh, in our own way, have in common with writers uh, like Orwell, is that there, these things happen in history, and we know about them, and we read about them, and we read fiction about them, and we read journalism about them, and we read history books about them. And then we sense that they're kind of happening in our time and we tap into that. Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 there's days when I feel like I'm crazy for thinking about it. And then there are days when I know that I'm crazy for thinking about it, but I can't help myself. Well, I really enjoyed homage to Catalonia, even though like Empire City and the story that was originally called The Wild Hunt and may have been renamed since were unfortunately prescient. And I think that you're both onto something. And thanks for hanging out and uh, reading homage to Catalonia with me. It was a real pleasure. We ought to do this again sometime soon. For sure. Thanks for having us on the Wrathbearing Tree podcast. Absolutely. Great, great conversation, guys. Thanks for having us, Adrian. And keep up the fire, both of you. Thank you.